Do I think I'm doing it? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I continue to ponder these things. I don't think that I've overcome the, the, the challenge of being comfortable with that level of uncertainty. It's probably something that still brings me a level of discomfort. Mm. Is it at the point where I think it's, you know, having negative impacts on my, my health and my mentality and all that kind of stuff? I don't think I'm there, but I do continually question what I will be willing to sacrifice Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello, and thank you for deciding to spend some time with me today. I have an ex-student of mine on this podcast who is a very impressive young man. And I catch myself because it's really hard for me to not call him a kid, but he ultimately is not a kid anymore. I first met him in an extra that I had to take, which was a year 11 biology class. And he was in that class as a year 10 student doing the accelerated subject. As a biology teacher, he quickly tried to take advantage of my knowledge in that class. And to be perfectly honest, I felt that he was overly confident and a little bit cocky in his manner. Towards the end of the year, I got my class list for the following year and I saw his name on my class list. He certainly had the reputation at the school from other teachers and students as being the smart kid. He was doing accelerated year 12 biology in year 11 in my class. He was unapologetic about the fact that he wanted to achieve and the fact that he was confident in wanting to learn actually created a really nice dynamic in the class and I feel boosted the enthusiasm for the content and the willingness to appear eager to learn. In that class it was not cool to not put yourself out there and to not do your best and that class performed incredibly well and I think that Dean in that class was part of pushing many of the other students. I then saw at the end of the year that he would be in my year 12 English class. And at the beginning of the following year, he came to me a little vulnerable, if I'm honest, and admitted to me that this would be the subject that he needed to work the hardest in because it was the subject that he struggled with the most. I knew he had very high expectations of himself. I knew that he wanted to achieve greatness in his academia and I felt truly responsible for his success. And throughout that year, we worked very hard together, teacher and student. I marked many essays. And I really had to work at offering him strategies and support to succeed because his very mathematical brain didn't work like a natural English student does. Throughout that year, we forged a really lovely relationship and I ultimately feel as though I mentored him in some way and we have kept in contact and he has continued to allow me to be a part of the celebration of his academic accomplishments. And so it is with great pleasure and privilege that I bring to you Dean and his story of academia and his journey to learning not just about how to solve an equation or write the best essay, but also learning about himself 
and what's important to him at a personal level. I don't think I can ever really express to you how beautiful and what an amazing thing it is to be able to hold some of these relationships once these kids have graduated in order to see how far they've come and also to see the pressure lessen and to see them find a real passion for life and for a vocation. So here's my conversation with Dean. Hi, Dean. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I am well. It's nice to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure. I thought I would start early with you. So can you tell me about what your teachers would have said about you in your early primary school years, like years five and six? I think that I would have been one of these part and parcel gifted students if I could put those in quotation marks, I would. But unfortunately, we don't get to do that on this platform. I think I certainly was a bit of a, a bit of a dweeby, dorky kid back in primary school. I was very impressionable. I was very diligent with the way that I did my work. And I think that I was aiming to please my, my teachers quite a bit. So if you ask them what they thought of me, I think that they would have said that I was a, quite a gifted student, maybe a little bit of a suck up, just a good little boy who did his work. Now, I know that you've told me before that your year six teacher insisted that you do not go to the local high school. So what was behind that? Yes, that's right. So I went to just a, a government primary school and when it came to at the end of year six and we were looking at where I was going to be going for my, my high school years, the local high school that I would have fallen within the zone of was not known for academic success uh, by, by any means. It was probably far more directed towards providing vocational training to uh, more local students and all that kind of thing and essentially because I was seen as this gifted student that that school wasn't going to, to cut it for me was kind of what they told my parents essentially. So what kind of measures were put into place to ensure you got into that quote-unquote better or more academic school? There was a number of things. At one point, I went for an IQ test, which I didn't realise was an IQ test at the time, but it was a great opportunity for me to go and play puzzle games and read things in this kind of dimly lit room by the office, which who I guess must have been a psychologist, but they didn't really tell me what I was there for. And so I got a formal IQ test with a psychologist to see if that would kind of help strengthen my application for some schools that were, you know, outside of my zone and private schools that I might be able to get a scholarship to. And did it strengthen that application? <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> uh, the the interestingly, some of the comments that were that were made was that I was very interested in in the process of what was happening rather than the actual tasks that were hand oh, sorry that were at hand. My biggest strength in in primary school was definitely mathematics um, and I think the idea of the IQ test was essentially to try and highlight some of that strength and the scores that I made on that test put me significantly below average in mathematics and reading comprehension which was the thing that I disliked doing the most I hated reading didn't enjoy English I was in the 99th percentile of so fantastic for my English terrible for my mathematics and so did it really help I don't think so. I think when schools are looking for students, they're probably not looking for students that are already have deficits potentially in, <laughs> in one domain of education, even if they were doing really well at reading for their age. Uh, so I don't know that that was included in my application in the end. I do find it interesting, though, that probably that skill is quite transferable, though. I mean, your comprehension would transfer to every subject, surely. Well, I guess so. If you can't read and you can't understand what you're expected to do in a task, how can you do it? Mm. So it was probably very handy for me, for me very early on, even if it wasn't a skill that I kind of attributed to myself or really acknowledged. 
I must have been able to understand things beyond the level of my peers, essentially. Yeah. Um, And so what happened? So you had you were going up towards a sort of better performing government school and also a quite prestigious private school. So how did that go for you? Initially, I think the goal was this prestigious private school. I had a sister who was enrolled in a Christian community private college and essentially it wasn't going to be feasible for me to go there for a number of reasons. One was being that my parents had already forked out a significant amount of money for my older sister. They had divorced. There was financial troubles in the family. And so being able to send me there to that Christian school was was not going to be very feasible. And I think the thing that made them very sure that they weren't going to send me there was that they had sent my sister there that she hadn't achieved academically the way that the school potentially promised. And so the decision was kind of made with my my teacher and my parents. They thought, no, 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 you certainly can't go to that private Christian school um, because he would be he would be wasted there essentially and he wouldn't get the, the education that he needed. So he was this prestigious private school that did have better academic results, certainly more expensive. And we went there and tried to get a scholarship. And I was very fortunate to be offered a partial scholarship. I think it was a 50% scholarship or something like that which potentially would put it within the reach of my my family if they were stretching themselves quite significantly. We just got this sense when I was there that I I wasn't going to belong. I wasn't cut from the same cloth as the kids that went to that school. And just as I kind of, you know, walked through some of the classrooms and saw the teachers and the way the kids interacted, I didn't feel comfortable. There certainly weren't any other kids from the the primary school that I'd been to that were going to um, to that high school that I knew of. So again, the plan changed and I went for an open day at the local government school that was outside of my zone that was known for higher academic achievement. And I was able to get in on an academic uh, merit application, essentially, and I went there the next year. So what did your early high school years look like for you? If I think back to what they they looked like, I certainly looked a lot different to what I, I, I do now, I hope. <laughs> I went into a high school very similarly, the, the dweeby dorky kid that I was probably in primary school with maybe a little bit more gel in my hair and probably some even worse fitting uniform. And oh, the dorky, the dorky black shoes that they make you wear there, shocking. Um, it's, brutal. it's brutal, those uniforms, aren't they, sometimes? It's brutal. That parents don't want to buy too many uniforms, so you've got to get the one that will fit you perfectly in year 10 when you're in year seven. Like it's essential. It's essential wearing. Every student turns up with <laughs> their clothes way too big. Yes, and I'll never forgive my parents for it um, because those <laughs> um, shorts that I wore were to to anticipate the 15-centimetre growth spurt that I would have <laughs> four years later. Uh, so it was a bit of a battle, but that was okay. I was there. I was excited, I, I think, in uh, early high school because there was only two people from my primary school who were going there, one who was a friend of mine, one who I hadn't really associated with in primary school. And I think I saw this as an opportunity to reinvent myself a little bit and be one of the cool kids this time. And so my my behaviour and the way that I interacted with uh, my peer group was probably very much influenced by that mindset. Considering you were there on an academic sort of merit situation and you had heard the term gifted and felt that that was applicable in some way to you did you ever feel as though or did you feel that you were catered for in those early years I definitely a sense of confidence going into the school I think that I'd been 
put on a little bit of a, a pedestal, whether or not I had realised it at the time. But I, I thought here I was a gifted student who had performed academically and why should I not perform academically again or why won't I be, you know, better than these kids as well. So I didn't have that kind of, I didn't feel the pressure necessarily early on. But was I catered for? I don't think so. I was really fortunate in primary school that there was these classes that I could, like extension classes that I could go to where kids who were beyond the syllabus that was being taught were all kind of catered for in, in a separate group. And I think that it was good because we, we brought each other up. And when I got back to year seven and year eight, I was with the, the rest of the, the students. There was kind of no discrimination or separation of students based on how they were uh, performing academically. And so essentially, in these classes I found myself bored I was I was still am a very process driven person and so if our learning involved learning a process it would take me quite a short time to understand that process and be able to apply that to whatever work I was doing so mathematics is always the best example of that you kind of sit down at the desk you open your textbook and you start your year on chapter one point one please complete the following 25 questions or something like that and the whole idea is to teach your process the problem being was that i understood the process by question four i have always had an affinity for patterns and you know all that kind of thing but uh it was something it was something that i found as a very useful educational tool was finding the patterns in things and just being able to to do things repetitiously and so if i'd worked out what the pattern was by question four and then i just had to do up to question 25 it would take me a really short amount of time to do that and when i looked around to my peers who were still you know learning process beyond that point and taking a lot longer to to do that i just kind of moved uh, away from the group essentially and so I would come up diligently or kind of excited at the start of, of high school potentially wanting to impress my teachers throw my work down on their on their desk and say I'm done and what I was greeted with on each one of those occasions was okay we'll go on with chapter 1.2 and so I would do that and it would be the same thing I'd understand the process by question four I'd smash out through question 25 and I'd go and I'd say I'm done and so in these classes there was the potential that I would go through you know multiple chapters or you know different kind of um uh, segments of learning at a much faster rate than my peers and I would just be told to continue going forth so then when you come in on the next day and everyone's starting on chapter 1.2 you're on 1.4 and then on the next day they're starting 1.3 you're on 1.7 then you finish the chapter and then I would go and say to my teacher okay what do you want me to do now and I would get some photocopied print-offs of a, a different textbook that had a different question set that tested the exact same process. And that just wasn't stimulating for me. There was nothing exciting about it. And I think I quickly learned that there was almost no benefit to me working as quickly as I could or, you know, I, I had to find a, another use for my time because otherwise I was just doing more work that I didn't think was going to benefit me. And so... I became disruptive <laughs> and I became pretty good at it. Yeah. I talked a lot of smack in my classes. I was able to kind of then start to uh, address this appetite that I had to be the, the class clown and someone who was far more social. And so that's what I did. And it was, I think, to the detriment of some of the classmates and friends that I had around me who weren't performing as well as I was. Do you think that some gifted kids can be mislabeled as disruptive and lazy? I don't think I was mislabeled as disruptive because I certainly was. Uh, was I being lazy at the time? I guess I wasn't doing the work that was being put out in front of me, but I wasn't engaging with it and I wasn't, I had no motivation to do it. 
had something been put in front of me that I think was going to be more, you know, stimulating or challenging or something like that, I think that I would have done the work. So absolutely, sure, it'd be very easy to label someone like myself as disruptive and, and lazy, but I guess it's just the, the lens that you view it through. And so when did that focus come for you then? That focus, I think, developed over years nine and year 10 because in those years, I was fortunate enough to go into, again, like an extension class for English and mathematics, which essentially um, uh, put me into a classroom with students who were learning at a uh, a more similar rate to the, than I was that I was able to have more vigorous and in-depth discussions with and that I would be challenged by in terms of uh, the work that we would do inside the classroom. But I was also challenged by them because I had always had this idea that I was this gifted student who was going to be at the top of my class and here were peers who were equal or better than me or outperforming mm-hmm. me. And so being put into that environment probably, you know, stirred a bit more of a fire in me to, to learn and perform than what I had early on. And had I not had that there, I think I just would have continued being the disruptive, lazy kid. How do you think you would have gone if you're in year 9 and 10 right now doing remote learning? Ooh. Look, if you gave me the option to, to do use 9 and 10 as a remote learning student versus being inside of the classroom, I definitely would have said, please put me inside the classroom. Mm-hmm. Even though I was, you know, there was more of a fire to, to learn and perform, the, the social aspect of school to me was incredibly important and I drew a lot of motivation from my peers and potentially from healthy competition with my mm-hmm. peers, I'll call it. And so I think the the difficulty with going to remote learning or something like that is that you're so removed from so many different people that you don't necessarily consciously uh, acknowledge as having an impact on the on the way that you behave and how you go about your day. I think that, you know, we've done quite a bit of uh, online learning with what I'm currently doing. And sure, you keep in contact with your your close group of friends, your, you know, the, the people that are the closest to you, but there's always these peripheral characters that you lose the interaction with. And I think for me, if I think back to these kids who, you know, weren't necessarily my closest friends that, you know, I could catch up with on the phone or something like that if I was doing remote learning, but the kids who would sit opposite me on the other side of the room in this English class and we would have these vigorous debates with one another because, you know, we wouldn't see eye to eye on particular things. And that was potentially why I didn't surround myself with those people in terms of my my close group of friends. Mm. I think that the difficulty with being taken outside of the classroom is that in a remote learning sense, you're probably far more restricted in terms of the the ideas and the interactions that you have with people and those peripheral characters we don't we don't acknowledge the the impact that they can have on us and so it's it's very easy to surround yourself with people who you know agree with you or you know think in a similar way but uh, the interactions with people who don't agree with you and don't think in a similar way especially going forwards as as an adult and later in life they're probably far more people uh, far more important for you to get exposure to because there's going to be people for that you interact with for the rest of your life that you don't agree with and don't think in a similar way to you. So, you know, are those kids missing out on that? And not to mention, too, you think about celebrities, right? And, I mean, ultimately, the higher up you get on the chain like that and the, you know, popularity, the more yes people you have. And then what ends up happening is you have no sense of reality and there's no pushback anywhere. So I think you're right. I think that the challenge that people provide you in terms of intellect and opinions is actually really important especially in those formative years, because it makes you really consider your viewpoint and why you have it. 
Absolutely. And for for me, I know that as a student, if I was surrounded by people who just were kind of like, yes, 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 everything kind of becomes boring. Or if we're all kind of in the same kind of opinion, it became boring. The For me, someone who didn't enjoy English, the thing that I absolutely loved was debating. Absolutely loved it because someone would put up a, it was a, it was a contest essentially there was a very very clear line of competition between you and an opponent with a separate viewpoint and so we can talk about it you know very formally in like debating style classes but the little micro debates and different difference in idea that comes just in discussion whether it be in something mathematic the way that you work something whether or not you've come to a correct answer or something like English where there's greater depth of ideas. I, I just see that as being something that might be missed out on for kids who are in remote learning and might not get that kind of exposure. Yeah, I agree. If we were to take you back to the age of 15 and 16, what was the dream job? What was the goal? Where were you headed at that time? <sighs> okay, 15, 16. We're going back a little while. Let's go back a little bit further because I have just recently seen a very tragic uh, year six graduation <laughs> video of myself. Uh, in front of a, a, a green screen and some very poorly animated spaceship in the background that we all came out of. But anyway, it's besides the point. Oh, I'm almost imagining you in a, like a really ill-fitted suit with like a bow tie, that kind of situation, no? No, this was my, I was wearing my uh, very fancy polo top that I got from Billabong. Stop it. Uh, from Osmosis. Um <laughs> This isn't a this isn't a sponsored podcast, Billabong. Though, if you want to throw out some some vouchers my way, I'm here for it. I don't think we've got the following. That's okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wearing a very very daggy uh, graduation outfit consisting of a polo short, uh, shirt and shorts. And essentially, as I came out of the um, the spaceship and you know struck my pose and had a talk about what I was going to be in the future. <laughs> I decided that I was going to be a lawyer because I was good at arguing with people. Not that at that age I was arguing with anyone because I was very conformist. I did what I was told. Uh, I did my work diligently. I wasn't confrontational at all and I was a good little boy by all senses of the word. But I thought that, you know, being a lawyer would be cool. I'd seen it on TV. It seemed like a, a job that the higher echelons of society would kind of undertake and therefore that was something that potentially was right for me and so skip forward into year nine and year ten this probably translated through high school a little bit not necessarily just with four but I had this idea that because I was an academically gifted student I needed to go into a, a profession that was inherently seen as potentially being something that was academic or difficult to get into so that was law that was engineering that was you know in commerce all that kind of stuff and so I don't think I'd ever really kind of deeply contemplated what I wanted to do I was very much being guided by the society that we were in my parents my teachers in terms of being someone who performed academically that meant that you need to go to university you need to get into a course that is difficult to get into and you're going to take the job essentially that comes after that for me probably more accounting engineering I was someone who was good at math those people do things with numbers that's what you'll do so I think that's what I had in my mind back as a 15 16 year old and it's interesting to me that you saw those professions as of the higher echelons of society as you put it so where did that impression Mm. come from and I use I use those words very specifically Um, and I think that you know culturally there is these we If you put on um, your TV right now, you could go and watch some kind of Netflix special like uh, Suits, which, you know, kind of is this really attractive um, way of 
illustrating law and lawyers. And I'm sure that there would be a bunch of lawyers that would come, would very openly come out and say, that's not what law looks like. Mm-hmm. And similarly, you can look at all, you know, the, the medical shows and all that kind of stuff. And everyone will say, well, that's not what medicine looks like. And you would have people who would come out, or oh, I used to love those big engineering project shows, like mega structures and all that kind of stuff. And you'd always see the end product across a one hour special, but you've got no idea what engineers do. You watch Dangerous Minds and you watch, what is it? Um, oh, Dead Poet Society. I can promise you that it's not what teaching is like. I promise you now. <laughs> I never had an opportunity of getting up on a chair. In fact, it was probably incredibly dangerous to recite a poem because definitely it- against OHNS. Oh, that's easier. So sorry, I I digress. But yeah, keep going. So well, I think I think that that's essentially what I was being kind of surrounded with. Everything that I was seeing through like media, through my parents, and all that kind of stuff. The idea was you're going to go into a high society job where people will respect you for the work that you do and you'll earn a lot of money and you'll put your brain to use, essentially. That was what I was destined for. That's how it was sold to me, at least. Would you ever have considered a career purely out of having passion for it? Very interesting. I think I was so indoctrinated at that point that I thought that my my passion was my academic success. And outside of that, was socialising with my friends. You can't turn socialising with your friends into a job. Um, you know, I played some social footy, all that kind of stuff. Again, being the dorky, dweeby, lanky kid that I was, an adult that I still am, there was no way I was making it to an AFL career. So, you know, was there opportunity for me to have a passion that I could therefore, you know, pursue and try and make a career out of? I think the the idea for me was that, or the passion that seeded into me almost was, do well at school, go to a good university, get a good degree, get a good job, and it didn't necessarily matter what that was. What if, for example, you had a real association with design or art or something like that and the outcome in order to get there or the or the way to get into that kind of job was to do folio-based work, um, the score wasn't particularly high, would that have been something that interested you? Absolutely not. Everything leading to the, the end of my schooling was all about that that ATAR score. It was all about that number. And so when I started to pick my subjects and look at the things that I wanted to do, it was very much about what was going to either benefit me in terms of if I do this subject, it's going to help me at university when I study in this field and I'm going to need to have that foundation of knowledge or how is this uh, subject going to get me a good score? In my mind, it was, oh, is this going to be a 50 subject for me? Got no 50s. (laughs) Absolutely not. Wasn't even close. Um, but in the, the big fish, little pond kind of mindset that I had, that's, they were kind of the considerations I had about what I would learn in high school and what the point of it was. Can you tell me about a teacher or a class that was really influential for you at high school? Hmm. I think I had a number of very influential teachers. The first one that comes to mind would have been uh, my extension math teacher that I, I first saw when I was in year nine. Essentially, I remained with that teacher for four years and that meant that we were able to develop a quite a strong relationship. She was very attuned to the way that I learned. She knew what made me tick. She knew what would piss me off. Uh, she knew what I could do to piss her off, essentially. It was a fantastic relationship. We were great. Um, but she also knew what, what to ex- expect of me and how to cater to my learning style, how to drive that fire in my belly. And I think that the, the big things that she did for me was really kind of uh, address this 
uh, this identity that I had in my own mind that I was, you know, a gifted student and I deserved to do well. And I think the way that she did that was she made it very clear to me that my peers were very successful. They were very academically minded people and quite often they worked harder than I did. And essentially she pretty much gave me this um uh, this eye-opener that if I wanted to maintain that identity in that position of, you know, being a very academically gifted person in this group of students, then I had to work harder than they were. And that necessarily wasn't even going to be the case. I wasn't always necessarily going to be as good as I thought I was, which was fantastic because I, I think I, I needed that awakening and I also needed that drive. So she helped introduce healthy competition. She helped introduce me to peers that I wouldn't usually work with and get us to work together collaboratively people who had a different kind of uh, way of thinking than than I did um, and essentially I I think that uh, that had a very positive uh, impact on me kind of moving forward into VCA. Were those strategies that she used for you universal for the class or do you think that they were more pinpointed to stoke that fire as you say in your belly? Certainly pinpointed to me. Mm-hmm. If I think of one situation, there was someone who I was kind of pegged against as my competition in that class. And I can think of a moment where, you know, we'd all brought our test results up and, you know, I'd, I'd handed my result. I think I, I did moderately well or something like that. It was a maybe for moderately well by the standard that I set for myself, I'll, I'll clarify. And it was maybe an 86% or something like that. And I was kind of like, meh, okay, whatever, that's fine. And so my competitor uh, came up, dropped their test in front of um, of the teacher. And of course, as the mark came out, 97%. Oh, very good. I was getting these eyes from across the room. My teacher just kind of making sure that I heard that number be called out just within, you know, just enough to uh, be my earshot and a very deliberate look in my direction. And I think that it was just those kind of little things, those little hints to me that, you know, I wasn't so secure on this pedestal that I had, that I was standing on, that I had put myself on and been put on by the, the people around me in my younger years. That was, that was kind of the, the start of getting me to actually knuckle down and, think about what I was doing and what I wanted to achieve. So can you tell me about your introduction to VCE or, you know, those year 11 and 12 years? So I did one VCE subject when I was in 10th grade. That was pretty much essentially at the at the demand of the school as a year 10. I had to start at least one VCE subject because it was a strategic move to help my academic success. Initially, I wasn't enrolled in one and the vice principal, who was one of my teachers, marched me down to the coordinators to say, you will put this boy in a VCE one and two class because I hadn't been put in one, I hadn't been timetabled in one. And I ended up picking up VCE 1 and 2 biology, which was something that I had absolutely no interest in. And as you can appreciate, obviously, as a biology teacher, everything in biology is all about plants and mm. leaves and trees and grass and nothing interesting. That's a gross, that's a gross <laughs> misrepresentation, I feel, as a biology teacher. I'm not going to take that. Uh, so can you please clarify that comment? Because that is not true. It was absolutely not true, but that was why I didn't want to do bio one or two in the start. Mm. And it ended up being probably, well, certainly my favorite subject in year 10, because I thought it was the most, it was the thing that was serious. It was VCE now, it's a one and two subject. It means something. So I knuckled down inside that subject and I actually 
very much enjoyed it because I could still see like this kind of process driven aspect to biology it's a science and anything that was science can you know you can almost apply this kind of process driven learning to and so I really enjoyed it it certainly grew on me and my idea of biology is more than just plants and and leaves certainly developed (laughs) and I was able to then uh, continue continue that until I uh, was taught by yourself in year 11 in my first VCE bio three and four class. What an experience that was. <laughs> well, what concept was it in biology that opened your eyes to thinking this is more than just plants? I remember one of our very, I think it was our very first class, we were talking about the, the biology of the cell. And the analogy that my teacher used at that point was that uh, a cell is like a, like a car factory. And the nucleus holds the plans for the cars that are going to be built. And then the different organelles that are within the cell are the different kind of parts of the factory that enable you to produce this final product, the car. And I remember there being this kind of light bulb moment in in my head of going, oh, wow, everything that has just kind of been said to me makes sense. I can see um, a very clear a relationship between you know what I'm being told and something that I can apply in life and therefore I can make a connection that was tangible to me and so that one little analogy I think kind of really drove my interest and I kind of went looking for those analogies in my education then then onwards. How was it then moving into VCE having that I don't want to say stigma maybe label is a better term the label of being the smart kid how did that affect you moving into VCE? It was difficult it was really difficult this whole time I've kind of been separated from my peers because I I learned at a faster rate or I was academically stronger. And then all of these students who had been, you know, learning seven through ten now that I'd been separated from all had this this fire in their bellies and everyone, you know, was so motivated by this end goal, this ATAR score. And so my identity or my position at the the head of my peers in a lot of my subjects was under significant threat. And I think that at at that time I was maturing a lot and I was becoming far more understanding that I wasn't necessarily going to be the best in the six subjects that I was studying or something like that. It was unreasonable for me to think that I could do that. I could still be successful with not being the best. The difficult part about kind of walking into VCE as one of the smart kids was that I very much felt like I had a target on my back. And I can remember through a chemistry class that I was in once I'd by that stage, I'd been able to harness the, the social aspect of schooling that I liked to work quite collaboratively with my peers. I really enjoyed working in a study group. And if I then, you know, we, we sat together and we had sacks and all that kind of stuff and our results would come out, I was still performing quite strongly. And if I turned to other people in my study group and I'd find out their result and that was less than mine, I would be genuinely happy for them if, you know, that was an improvement or, you know, that was something that they should really be proud of. And it was almost like, my license to give praise to others was taken from me because my score was better. And so I would turn around and say, you know, that's really good. And they'd be like, oh, well, it's not a this, uh, which is what I got. And so it was very difficult for me to, to want to share my results with my peers because I thought that made me an unlikable character potentially. Mm. So what subjects did you end up doing? I did VCE math methods, VCE specialist math, chemistry, biology, accounting, and English. And which was the most challenging for you? English. Absolutely English. Without a flutter of a doubt, English was my hardest subject. Another class that you taught me in. Okay. um, I'm glad I didn't know that. So what was it about English that you found so challenging? I think that 
I've been very heavily reliant on this process method of learning and completing my work that just simply didn't apply to English. Even in this um, this kind of accelerated English class that I was in in Year 9 and Year 10, I was probably very systematic in the way that I was trying to put out my English pieces. And because of that, I was certainly not at the, the top of that class. I wasn't anywhere near it. And I remember being jealous of people, my, my peers who were performing well, because they would write with such beauty and such elegance and flow that I just could not conjure. Mm. And if I think back to a pretty vivid memory of year 12, getting some feedback from your yourself oh. about the essays that I was putting out was that <laughs> they were convoluted and had too much flowery language. They did. Um, which they were terrible. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like to go back and read them now. <laughs> and I think the difficulty for me was that, you know, in maths, if you add A and B and they're two positive things, you get something which is bigger than A and B together. So for English, where I was trying to put more in and these big words and these fancy concepts, you know, stringing together sentences that would be probably pretty difficult to articulate if you tried to read it out loud. Mm. I couldn't understand why my marks were going down and why things weren't going, weren't getting better. And similarly, just trying to apply this process-driven learning strategy wasn't going to work in, in English. I couldn't just do, I couldn't learn the process from questions one through four and repeat it 25 times as quickly as I couldn't get good at it. That wasn't the way that it was going to be. So it was a difficult transition for me. And so how did you tackle that in the end? What was it that allowed you to perform? Because it, from memory, what did you get? Like, I think you got at least an A on the exam, didn't you? I did. From from memory, I don't know for sure, but I think that I was you got around the 40s. So I remember that part definitely. That was true. Yeah. How did you go from you know finding it a real struggle to ultimately succeeding quite well? I think the the first thing that I needed to do was to acknowledge the fact that this was something that I was going to struggle with, and so I needed to kind of provide myself permission in in some ways to not necessarily be the biggest like success in English and to kind of see the success of my peers, be happy for them and and kind of get a mature sense of where I actually stood and be okay with that. Because if you took me back to kind of my earlier years where I was doing very well and I was up the top of the class and you put me in that kind of mindset into this situation, I think I would have chucked a hissy fit because I would see everyone doing better than me and I wouldn't have been able to understand why that was. So being able to acknowledge my actual position was probably the kind of key to opening up, being able to move forward from that. And then I hit the books hard. And by hit the books, I mean, I read the books, certainly, but I smashed out as many essays as I possibly could Mm ferociously handwritten because I wanted to repeat the the process. I guess I was still trying to pull on this as much as I could so that when I walked into my exam, there wasn't going to be something there that I wasn't prepared for. That was kind of the way that I, in my mind, would be able to ace the exam would be I'm going to make sure there's nothing that comes up on that paper that surprises me that I haven't practiced before. And so that meant essays on essays on essays. I remember. And I'm very sorry for what I put you through. I remember I marked them all and gave you feedback on all of them. But, you know, look, and it's so funny because English, I sometimes find the process doesn't always lead to the best result because the more you apply a process, the more, I guess, predictable the writing becomes and you end up sort of taking sentences and taking ideas from other essays that potentially don't fit. So it is a really hard one. I mean, unfortunately, 
there is a natural ability associated with English and it's and it can be really hard to teach. And I do remember having to say to you at some stage, calm down. You've got yes. just calm down, have a discussion about that rather than writing it down because the discussion perhaps I think will bring up more ideas for you than continuing to write from a place of your own knowledge. That's right. I do remember getting one piece of feedback from you and it was uh, quite a jestful little look and uh, it's kind of boring as you handed my paper back to me Mm. and I was kind of like, what? And you were like, well, I've read it all before. It's kind of boring. And that was exactly what I needed. I needed someone to, to say, pump the brakes here. Um, and I definitely got that from you. I can remember very vividly saying, this is enough. You you understand your concepts. You're going to become mm-hmm. robotic. You need to tone it down. And I think that having uh, someone who was mm-hmm. external to my own head to kind of be able to look in and see what was happening um, and provide a bit more of guidance was uh, very, very important for me. Yeah. How important do you think it is that teachers really understand who you are as an individual? Oh, so important. Mm. Jeez. So, so, so important. I think the the fortunate thing for me, and if I think about the classes that I did the, the best in, I think, was that for most of those classes, I had repetition in the people who were teaching me. And I think, sure, like across a year, you're going to come to learn students and the way that they learn very very well and I think the the fortunate thing for me if I look at at maths for me having one teacher for four years meant that by the end of that first year period that teacher knew who I was how I learned how I went about my business essentially and then was able to apply that knowledge in the way that they engaged and interacted with me in each subsequent year there's obviously like a a, a time that it takes to kind of learn who someone is and how they they interact with people. And so, you know, if that's a six-month period, then that could be six months at the start of the year that you're not engaging with the student as um, as efficiently as you could be. And so even coming into English with you as my, my second subject that I had with you, you'd known me for 12 months prior. Yeah. Yeah. And even though the, the subject was completely different, the individual and the student, their learning style and, you know, how they interact with others inside a classroom, I think that the the more you know about them, the greater tools you have in, in order to direct them to where you want to go and to help facilitate their learning. Yeah, I completely agree. So what did you end up achieving at the end of VCE? What course did you get into? I was very happy with the way that I went in in VCE at the end and I moved on to study a Bachelor of Biomedicine at the University of Melbourne, not exactly knowing what what I wanted to do with that degree and in my application for that degree probably still pulling on to this idea of if you do well you have to go to university you need to go into a degree that's hard to get into and you need to go and kind of go out into the world with that so the clear end for the bachelor of biomedicine the year that i did at 2014 was 99.0 i believe which was the score that I fortunately got, which was great. And so when it came time to apply to university, even though I had ideas about engineering and commerce and all that kind of stuff, and I was very mathematically based in year 12, I wasn't studying by, this was just something that I'd done in year 10 and year 11. This was the one that was going to be for me because it was the hardest to get into and therefore, you know, it was the right thing to do essentially. Was that with the idea of going into medicine? No, not at all. At that point, I started my Bachelor of Biomedicine in a engineering stream mm. because, again, I thought, oh, I'm good at maths, so I have to do engineering or something like that. I'm certainly not going to be a biologist. Again, hate trees, hate leaves, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. No, I'm kidding. And 
So I did that for one year, and at the end of it, I realized that all the stuff that my peers were learning outside of the bioengineering component in the regular stream of um, the Bachelor of Biomedicine was far more interesting than what I was doing, and it kind of captured my attention far more. So I transitioned back, and then in my second year onwards, I had the ambition of studying medicine after that degree. So going to Melbourne University with a clearing of 99, so again, you're at that top tier of that VCA cohort the year before yep. or, you know, if it's mature age, you know what I mean, the top top academic individuals and you came from a government school. Was there any stereotype assigned to you or anything like that? Yes, very interesting question. Um, certainly when I went, I was the only person in my year level to study that degree, so I didn't know anyone who was going into that degree there was a handful of kids from my high school that was going to Melbourne University wasn't something that we were particularly well represented in and so I kind of felt myself going through the same kind of process of the lonely transition from primary school to high school again as I was in secondary school to now my tertiary education and I think it's interesting like you've got this idea if you've got this opportunity to invent the person that you want people to to know you as as you kind of go go in and no one will have any judgment of who you are and that was hugely attractive again. And I remember the very first lecture that I went into, we had, um, I was sitting beside a girl that I didn't know, maybe a couple of seats down. And there was a uh, exercise that the lecturer said, was like, okay, stand up, turn to the person next to you, shake their hand, which, you know, definitely tells you that it's from a, a time long ago in the current circumstances we find yeah. ourselves in. And, you know, tell them where you're from and all that kind of stuff. And so I said, you know, my name is Dean, and I said that I went to the high school that I went to, and this person turned around to me and said, oh, so you got in on C's application, the like the special consideration application. And that was before I had told them anything more about myself. I wasn't a special application, a special consideration application candidate. I got there on my own um, academic merit, but just purely because of the the high school that I had been to, the government high school that I'd been to, this person already had an idea that the only reason I was there was because I'd gotten special consideration. Um, And so there was this very apparent classist divide that I found myself in. And so this illusion that I had that I might be able to invent the the person that I wanted people to, to understand me as very quickly dissipated because I realised that there were people that I would be uh, in a cohort with that had already uh, made their judgments on me based on the fact that I was coming from a government school. Do you think in the same way that you had your own assumptions though about students that perhaps went to the more prestigious private schools? Certainly. I, I don't think that I was devoid of, um, of that at all. I remember one of my now best friends I thought was and. I'll watch my language here, um, was a pompous private school smug kind of git, I'll <laughs> say. Okay. Um, yeah. He was someone who, um, you know, I tried engaging with, was someone who didn't seem to really like to talk to me. Perhaps, perhaps I was jaded from these these initial experiences that I had with the, knowing that he was from one of these prestigious private or boy, boy school in the city. I thought perhaps he wasn't talking to me because, you know, he didn't see us as, as peers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Turns out he was just super shy and he's an absolute sweetheart. We've been best friends ever since. Right. But I think I certainly went, went into um, 
my initial interactions with him, certainly judging the character, I thought he would be based purely because he was from a private school. So mm. I'm sure it goes both ways. Were most people's goals in that course to get into a postgraduate medicine? Yes. At that time, yes. This was seen as the, some people, even to this day, despite there being no, like, uh, no official title, will put it in uh, quotation marks and call it the preferred pathway into postgraduate medicine, was doing an undergraduate degree of Bachelor of Biomedicine at the University of Melbourne. And if I look at the people that I now study with, there's certainly no, no merit to that comment at all. Okay. Considering that this course then was still a competition because you still have that end goal at the end, what did that create for you amongst the peer group that you're with? It was very interesting. There was always the so the way that you would get into to postgraduate medicine was almost very much similar to an, an ATAR. You set an objective test called the GAMSAT. They would look at your grade point average from your university studies and you would sit an interview. Um, and so even though you were, you know, you were in a peer group, quite a small cohort in the course that I did, there was always this air of competition about trying to best your classmates because everyone knew that everything that you were doing was essentially amalgamating in this score that would standardise you against the rest of the applicants just like the ATAR does. And so I think that it was handy that I had a, a friends that I was able to seek out that learned in a very similar way to me. They enjoyed study groups. They enjoyed learning in quite a social capacity. Um, and so I was able to stick with those people and distance myself from the people who were very heavily involved in this um, competitive kind of culture. And was I competitive? Sure, I wanted to. I wanted to do well. I wanted to get good scores because. Anything that put me ahead of someone else was something that was potentially going to mean that I would get the score that would enable me to get into medicine in the end. So there was always this kind of underlying competition between people, but certainly not so much in my group, but in other groups that I saw, that was quite a, quite a toxic feature. When you are one of the smart kids at high school and you end up in a degree where pretty much everybody is the smart kid, how do you find your place within that? It's really difficult. I think for so many people who got into that degree, I think their identity was very centred around this idea that you were the highest academic achieving person. And as one of my fantastic high school teachers put it to me, just keep in mind, in here you may be a big fish in a little pond. And when you go out there, you can find yourself being a very small fish in a much larger pond. That's not just true for people who go into tertiary education. I think that's just true to life. We can kind of get big-headed and comfortable in, in the circles we find ourselves in. And so when you take 350 people who have all been right up the top of um, of academic success their whole lives and then you create uh, assessments that essentially bell curve everyone you could go from being the very top the top one percent to being the bottom one percent of that top one percent and people i think lose touch with that idea of you're still you know up there you're still a successful person you still performed very well but as soon as the where they sit on the bell curve and amongst their peers changes that can really, really tear people's identities and I certainly have seen that happen. So how do you maintain your mental health in a degree that is heavily based on competition that can potentially knock your identity as a gifted or smart student and also has a very rigorous assessment mm. component? It's really difficult, I think. I'm 
someone who's been very fortunate to enjoy very good mental health throughout the the entirety of my degree. That's not to say that we don't come up against challenges, but I think the things that have enabled me to kind of get through those challenges have been the time and value that I take in being quite deeply uh, introspective. I think that for me, much like uh, I probably had done in in a juvenile sense in high school, I gave myself this permission to not be the best person in the room. And I think that I found it very grounding the fact that I could look back and say I have already achieved to be where I'm standing and that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to rest on my laurels and I'm not going to give it my all because I still want to be successful but getting to where I am currently has been an achievement and if I look around at the cohort of peers that um, I'm around who are all very brilliant bright people there's a damn well good chance that I'm not going to be the top one of them and I think I realized that very early I think that potentially having come from a public school having been more involved in the community in terms of the fact that like I was working I had stuff that was outside of academia that meant that while doing well in school was very a a core component of my identity it wasn't everything so when that was challenged when I came into um, into tertiary education it wasn't as big of a hit for me realizing that I wasn't the smartest person in the room because there were other things that were important or other like domains of life that I could be successful in. So you talked about being at school, having a job and also being part of the community. How important do you believe it is to have a global perspective? Oh, it's so important. Lord, the the person that I am today is by no small amount reflected of all the things that I did outside of school as much as I did inside of school. And that's, you know, during high school and during my tertiary education. When I was 18 years old, I moved out of home, I started renting, I had to financially support myself, and I took up work in the entertainment industry, essentially, working in... I'd like to give you the opportunity to clarify that. (laughs) You'd like me to, yeah. Entertainment industry might be a little bit provocative. I was working in a nightclub, quite a quite a large nightclub, and I ascended the ranks to uh, end up managing that nightclub or being one of the managers of that nightclub for um, several years up until early 2020. And the exposures and experiences that I got from, from that job in terms of dealing with tricky situations which required you to think quickly on your feet and dealing with conflict, working in a team, they're all skills that I wasn't necessarily being taught in high school. Almost definitely not. And you certainly don't get taught it formally in tertiary education, sure. You do group projects and all that kind of stuff. And trust me, group projects definitely draw up some conflict, but not at the level as the, uh, of the level or, or caliber as what I was experiencing being a manager in a, quite a, a high-intensity job. And so if I think about you know what has prepared me for my, my future career, that job is a very, very significant part of it. And there's a lot of skills that I think that I've learned from that that will translate very well into what I, I go on to now in the future. So if I consider my peers and other people who are, who are going into serious degrees and all that kind of stuff or going into professional employment as their, their first job and all that, I can't help but think that if I was in that position and I hadn't had the exposures and experience that I had, that I would be drastically under-experienced and under-prepared to take those things on because there's so much that school doesn't teach you that you've got to learn. And in terms of, as you said, being in that sort of top tier of society in terms of academia, 
were many of those students awarded that score because they didn't have the other distractions that you had? Mm, That's a very good question. I can't say that working at McDonald's from 15 to 18 as I was through my high school years was contributing to the scores that I got. I don't think there was anything that was happening as I was making Big Macs that, you know, was improving my English scores. So certainly there was times that uh, I had to dedicate to other things that people who weren't having to dedicate that time to that could have put that more into study. Absolutely. I can see why those people would be put at an advantage, but only at an advantage when it came to that score at the end of the year. But I also see there being a significant disadvantage to not having those experiences, especially the middle teenage years. I think there's a lot to learn outside of school that if you're not getting those experiences again, I think that you're being underprepared and under-equipped for life that happens outside of an educational setting. Mm-hmm. Life doesn't occur in high school and uni. Life occurs outside those walls. Very mm, so true. Where are you at now in terms of education, job, all that kind of stuff? So I am rounding up the 20th year of my formal education, mm. uh, which is fantastic. So after my Bachelor of Biomedicine, I went on to study a Doctor of Medicine. I'm in my final six months of that, that degree, looking down the line at a job at one of Melbourne's big tertiary hospitals that I've secured for next year, where I'll begin working formally as a doctor for the first time in January. So super excited for that. Very exciting. You said to me once that as part of your degree, you had to consider what your brand was as a doctor. What does that mean to you? What is your brand? Yeah. So essentially this this idea of our brands was kind of brought to us when we were talking about applying for our jobs for, for next year. And so if I looked around at some of my colleagues and what was the thing that was going to make them an, an attractive candidate for those roles, some of them had, you know, these incredible scores and research papers and their whole world was academia. And so academia essentially was their was their brand. They sell themselves this person who has always been, you know, even within our cohort, at the top of the class. And that was therefore should be an attractive thing. That was never going to be the case for me. I wasn't the person who was at the top of my class. I wasn't the person who got perfect scores through uni. But what I did have was a wealth of experience outside of university. I'd worked for the the entire time that I had been inside uh, uni in, in management capacities, in operations management, in big festivals and all that kind of stuff. And so the experiences and skills that I could pull on from from those roles was something that to me showed that I was a committed worker, someone who could balance multiple tasks at one time and someone who could work well in a team. And so because I'd had this experience outside of academia, I was able to sell myself to my employers as that person. And essentially that was my brand. What is one of the greatest challenges that you have faced? It doesn't have to be academic. It could be a life situation, but what is a way in which you have been tested that you think has created the greatest challenge and also allowed you to build important skill? It's a really good question because I think when we think of um, challenges, it's, it's very easy for us to go straight down that academic line. You know, what was the test? What was the result? Didn't you go as well as you wanted to? I think for me, the, the most challenging thing for me kind of getting to where I am now essentially has been being comfortable within myself of the level of sacrifice that I'm willing to make for you know in my relationships in the the time that I spend doing hobbies and things that I might enjoy 
in order to secure my my success in a career and, and build myself from an academic perspective. It's a really challenging thing because finding that line of what you're happy to sacrifice and what you're not happy to is very, very deeply personal and individual, I think. And so I look at some of my peers who uh, are going into medicine and, and medicine is absolutely their whole life. And so they put less emphasis on their relationships. They put less emphasis on their hobbies. They put less emphasis on, on work and being successful outside of outside of medicine. And for them, medicine is absolutely everything. For me, the biggest challenge has been kind of finding that, that line about how much of my life I want medicine to be, how much of my identity I want medicine to be. I guess, you know, as I've um, reflected upon in my more adult life, I grew up with this identity that I was um, an academic success. That was the kind of the label that I would kind of be printed as. And while I'm comfortable, you know, calling myself successful in terms of academia now I'm transitioning to medicine I have to decide is my identity to be a doctor is that who I am am I just a doctor or is there something else and what percentage of me do I want to be the doctor and what percentage of me do I want to be a friend and a partner and you know one day a father and all that kind of stuff and so the biggest challenge for me now because we kind of have to map out what our trajectory is and how we'll train what our life will kind of look like like in the future and make decisions about that right now that's probably the the most challenging thing for me is coming up against those kinds of questions and not necessarily having a certain answer so the i guess the, the challenge really is being comfortable with uncertainty uh, in the face of kind of big decisions and big changes yeah do you think you're there yet? do i think i'm there no absolutely not <laughs> I continue to ponder these things. I don't think that I've overcome the, the, the challenge of being comfortable with that level of uncertainty. It's probably something that still brings me a level of discomfort. Mm. Is it at the point where I think it's, you know, having negative impacts on my, my health and my mentality and all that kind of stuff? I don't think I'm there, but I do continually question what I will be willing to sacrifice for this career that I've now chosen for myself. I love that answer so much. That was good. Cool. Okay, I've got one more question for you. Let's do it. All right. Now, you have gone through 20 years as you say of education. You're on the precipice of this career that has taken you 20 years to identify, to work for, and to gain. What advice would you give to yourself as a Year 12 student now that you are sitting at this position? If you go back, what would you say to yourself? What would I say to myself? I probably wouldn't be saying, if you think that this is bad, <laughs> there's another seven years coming away. Have some perspective. No, I think the advice that I would give myself is take time to look after yourself and take time to, to really think what matters to you. I think I grew up with the, the constructs of my identity kind of being handed to me. And if I could take a, a moment as, a, as an 18-year-old back in year 12 to kind of sit with myself and kind of work out exactly what I wanted for me, not in terms of what do I want to do after high school necessarily, but who is the person that I want to be? How do I want to be seen by the people around me and how do I want to engage with the world? I think, you know, taking that time to be nailed down on those things and kind of come to become at peace with them means that you'll just be so much more resilient going forward when anything kind of comes to, to challenge your identity, be that in the form of poor academic performance or 
you know, a, a relationship breakdown or not getting the job that you wanted or anything like that. If you know who you are and the person that you want to be, as soon as something comes and, and challenges that, you're going to be so much better equipped to, to deal with that challenge if you've taken the time to kind of work it out yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate no, it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's the least I could have done after putting you through all those essays. <laughs> oh, it was a pleasure. It was fine. It was fine. Brought, built me some resilience, Dean. Built me some resilience. <laughs> character building stuff. That's uh, that's what I am. I build character. That's it. That's it. All right. Well, thanks so much for the chat and we'll catch up soon. Thanks so much. Bye.